and welcome to episode 49 of Connectivity. This is Scott Thompson. We've got four segments for you this week. Uh, kicking things off, um, Nicholas Bray and Andrew Brown interview uh, people at the Manifest Anime Convention to see how excited they are for Wii U. After that, myself, Zach, and Neil uh, do a listener mail segment. Uh, closing out the regular show, we have uh, Nicholas Bray back with uh, another installment of In Focus, this week focusing on Goldeneye. After the outro, we have a bonus segment uh, with myself and Johnny Metz, and we talk about space. Enjoy. Hello, this is Nicholas Bray, and welcome to the Manifest NWR interviews. Uh, myself and Andrew Brown attended uh, an anime um, convention last weekend, and we ended up surveying some people about the interest in the Wii U and just a couple of general Nintendo questions. So, uh, here it is. Uh, so, can I guess you get your name, please? Um, Marley, M-A-R-L-E-Y. So, you're a big Nintendo fan? Oh, yes, definitely. So, you, um, you have a Wii and a GameCube? and No, but I do have a Game Boy and a DS. Oh, that's... And I play a lot of ye olde Nintendo games. And speaking of which, Donkey Kong Country. <laughs> Are uh, you planning on getting a Wii U anytime soon? Um, I'm considering it. Probably not considering I don't own a normal Wii, but if it is backwards compatible, I might. It is backwards compatible. Okay, in that case, that might be something to consider. Very many, yes. Okay, so uh, you're, not, you're not likely to pre-order, though. Probably next year, maybe sometime. Yeah, something along those lines. Okay, well, thanks for your time. No worries. Alana? Rachel? Um... Are you guys big Nintendo fans? She's more than I am, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, what consoles do you own? Ooh, I have an entertainment system, a Super Nintendo 64, and a Wii. Uh, just Nintendo or just any? Uh, just Nintendo. Okay, cool. Entertainment system, 64, GameCube, Wii, Game Boy, GBSP. DS, 3DS. <laughs> uh, either of you going to uh, pre-order a Wii U? I don't know. My brother might, and then I'll just use his. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, don't know if I'll pre-order, but I'll probably end up getting it. So you might just wait a while till some more games come out that you want. Maybe. Like, the, there's a couple that I'm interested in. Like, I wouldn't mind Pikmin and Zombie U, but yeah, I'm not sure if I'll get it released. Cool, cool. Okay, thanks for your time. I'm here with Reese. Reese. So, Reese, uh, are you looking forward to the Wii U? I uh, kind of, yeah. Are you going to pre-order it soon, or probably not? My cash is a little bit strapped at this time of year. Yeah. Um, what, what games are you looking forward to on at the moment? Um, always the next Smash Brothers. I bought every console just for a Smash Brothers for the hopes of a Smash Brothers coming out. Okay, so you're a Smash Brothers nut. Yes. So no games currently really pique your interest on the Wii U. Um, not really. I haven't really been browsing the websites lately, but um, I'll keep my ear close to the ground when it's actually coming out. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Dan. Dan. So, Dan, are you looking forward to the Wii U? I am indeed. Are you going to pre-order it? Already have. Already, Already... fully paid off, too. Oh, that's, that's impressive, actually. Uh, so, what games are you going to be looking forward to? Uh, four, mainly. Pikmin 3, Rayman Legends, P100, or Project P100. And what was the other one? I've forgotten. Zombie U? Yeah, Zombie U. Ah, yeah. uh, cool, yes. 
Okay, now I'm here with uh, Reese. Reese, uh, Reese, are you looking forward to the Wii U? Um, well, I really personally haven't heard much about the Wii U, but um, from the functionality that I've seen so far, I'm look. I'm just excited for another Zelda game, just to be honest. You know, fanboy of all. <laughs> so you you think you might uh, buy a Wii U early on or wait a while? Look, um, I'll have to let it probably mellow for a bit. Wait to see what comes out, what games originally come out with it, and depending on what price. But I'll probably wait a little bit. So do you have a Wii? Um, yes, I do have a Wii. <laughs> and I assume Skyward Sword. Yeah, Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess, and then um, I've also got the GameCube version of Wind Waker. Cool, uh, thanks for that. That's alright, have a nice one. See ya. Thanks. Okay, now we're here with... Slinky. Slinky and... Lauren. Lauren. Um, are you planning to get a Wii U? Not really. <laughs> but I might in the future, but just not at the moment. Do you have a do you have a Wii? Yes, I do. What's your favourite Wii game? Um, Duon, The Grudge. That's an interesting choice. I didn't expect that. Are you planning on getting a Wii U? Mm, probably not. Any particular reason? Um, pro- I only really have a Wii be- for the Zelda games, really. That's the only reason I have one. So I'm you- more a computer person. So you have two games on the Wii. Well, I have Wii Sports. <laughs> Three games on the Wii. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, pretty much, that's it. Okay, well, uh, thanks for your time. No worries. <laughs> there we go. Okay, Aaron, uh, what's your favourite Nintendo game? Oh. They tend to be Pokemon. Pokemon? Uh, are you looking forward to the Wii U? Uh, I haven't really been able to keep up much in uni. Okay, so you haven't really been keeping up with the Wii U. Um, do you own a Wii? No. Nah. Don't own a Wii. Do you own a 3DS? No. Nah. Do you own a DS? No. What's what's the last what's the last Pokemon game you played? Uh, Emerald. Okay, so GBA. All right, thanks for that. Anyway. Okay. Uh, Mike, are you looking forward to the Wii U? Um, I am currently dressed as Ness, if I heard your question correctly. Are you looking forward to the Wii U? Um, oh, yes, yes, definitely. Like, uh, mostly just for the next Smash Brothers, because I'm a giant fan of that series, and uh, I'd buy anything Nintendo just to play it. Are you going to um, buy the console when it comes out, or are you going to wait a while? Um, sort of tossing up. But knowing me, I'm probably going to fold and just buy it soon. It's released, yeah. Listener Mail. I'm your host, Neil Ronahan, and with me as, you know, most often, usually or not, Scott Thompson. Hello! And Zach Miller. I am so high right now. Oh, really? 
on meds. <laughs> I'm uh, also I'm blood sugar. On, I am high on rage at Amazon right now um, because they keep on doing this shit where they send me things on release day like Madden, and they're like, "Oh, you got to sign for it, so you can't actually get this game the day it comes out." What? And then I'm like, "Fuck you, Amazon! I'm going to return the game to you when I get it. And I'm just gonna buy it at Target." <laughs> that's what I did. Wow. Fuck it. Just to clarify, so, uh, my drug of choice, mushrooms, of course. Yes, um, I usually go for uh, straight ether. I like cefoxetin, <laughs> some good shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, so what are we doing today, Neil? <laughs> uh, I guess we're going to talk about some, some mail, because, uh, what, right, that's what I said when we first started this. I said listener mail. I guess. And and it feels like, I feels like hours ago already. I don't know. It was, it was approximately a minute to <laughs> a minute and a half ago. Not totally sure, but uh, let's go to the first letter from a person on the internet. Scott, you have it. <laughs> yeah, I'll read it. Um, so this is from uh, Chris, uh, also on Twitter, known as LAAG64. I don't know if that's supposed to be lag. Lag64. Lag64. Lag. <laughs> Alright, well, here we go. He says, your talk last week uh, got me thinking about multiplayer on the 3DS and Wii U. Asynchronous is becoming more and more popular on the iOS and even moving to PS3 and 360. Do you think we'll see Nintendo allowing it on the 3DS and Wii U? I feel like Advance Wars is screaming for the addition, uh, the addition of asynchronous multiplayer. What other games from Nintendo do you think could make good use of this? Mario Golf? P.S. How amazing would a 2D Pikmin from Feel Good be? Of course it would use the art style from the cover of Pikmin 2. <laughs> I would, I would like to first comment on that P.S. How the hell would a 2D Pikmin yeah, even work? how would that work? Olimar would jump through a side-scrolling level collecting 100 Pikmin. There you go. I mean, would, would you throw the Pikmin like the eggs in Yoshi's Island? And would it, like, I mean, <laughs> would this be the, uh, the the good feel Yoshi game, but it's just Pikmin instead? Where you what's, have... what's the, um, it was a 360 game, I want to say, where you're this, like, guy and you're controlling a bunch of these, like, little demons. It was, like, similar to Pikmin, but, like, kind of all, like, evil-looking and stuff. Oh, um, Overlord or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, they Dude, Overlord's they, great. Uh, the Wii one is actually very, very good. I highly recommend it. Well, huh. didn't they make there? Isn't there a DS one where it was basically like they just stripped it down and you basically have one demon of each color that does different yeah, things? Yeah, there's a DS game that, like that that I reviewed. Okay, I was gonna say I didn't play that one. Was it? Wasn't that top down or was it a side scroller? It was top down. It was top oh, down, no. but it was I like see Lost something. Vikings. Yeah, that's I what could, it seemed like. I could see something similar to this. I mean, I know, like, the idea of Pikmin is, like, having a lot of Pikmin at once, but... You could, yeah. you just, you have, could like, just do a, a Pikmin mystery dungeon. Uh, yeah, for, maybe. No, that's but, like, that's what I did. I'm just imagining, like, uh, a boy in his blob, but, like, instead of a jelly bean changing blob into different things, like, you just have different color Pikmin, like, maybe just, a, like, a, three of each that sure. will, like, do different things for you to solve different puzzles and stuff. That could be kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would change things, but it, it, you could totally use that setting. But will it happen? No, never. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that's going to go down. I think if we get a uh, Pikmin on 3DS, it will be a port by Grezzo of Pikmin 2. <laughs> yeah. But let's let's get to the uh, to the asynchronous part of this question. Uh, how do you do? You guys think this will happen on 3DS or Wii U? More a- asynchronous like multiplayer and stuff. I mean, yeah. is that the the whole idea behind Wii U? It's not I real mean... asynchronous multiplayer, though. It's not what they mean when they say it. When they say it, they mean two people in the same room playing the same game at the same time with different control inputs. What this guy means is, you know, like you take a turn, then I take a turn. Yeah, like, like, like words, words with, with friends. friends. 
I can't believe we both went to Words with Friends. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, I, I had a bender of like a week and a half where I played a lot of Words with Friends, and then I went away on vacation and just totally forgot about it. It's kind of how I and was every, to draw every, everyone canceled their games with me. <laughs> I mean, he's been gone. Fuck him. <laughs> they never let you back into the game. <laughs> but uh. I mean, like, the Advance Wars thing is actually something that came up on, a, I think, a Twitter conversation with, like, Sklens and Johnny Metz, where we were talking about how Hero Academy is, is kind of like that Advance Wars style of game, and that is that has asynchronous multiplayer, and how something like that with Advance Wars, you know, could be pretty awesome. But then again, I feel like that, you know, it slows down the pace of games, and you can't really have the games be, at least I feel like, that involved, that the turns take too long, or else it kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I feel like there's definitely potential within that to kind of make, you know, deeper experiences from that alternating turn style of play. Yeah, I mean, and plus they could have regular multiplayer, but it could be interesting to have it as just an option. Um, yeah. Like, I think of, um, there was this PC game, I, I think, I want to say James has talked about it before on RFN, and I played it actually last summer, like right before I joined the staff here, but, um, Frozen Synapse, and it's this, um, it's this like kind of like strategy game where you control like a like three or four uh basically like little like soldiers on this um whole like virtual battlefield and like you take cover and I don't know it's very it's very in depth I don't really want to get into the mechanics of it now but it had a multiplayer mode where you did that I mean it was like playing chess like oh you know by like sending a letter to a friend with like your move and then he makes a move on his board and then like keeps moving so it's like you set your move and then when you're uh, the other player like finally logs on. He sees your move, sees what happened, then makes his move, and then it sends it back to you. And it actually worked really well. So like um, Hero you, Academy. Yeah, exactly. And then you'd get like emails when the uh, you know when the move the guy had made his move and it was your turn. So you just jump on your PC and, and make your move. And yeah, it, it worked really well. I, I could I would definitely like to see something like that. Hmm. Yeah, it does sound pretty cool. It kind of gives you like something to look forward to. Like you get that email, like like okay, it's your move. So then you you're kind of pumped to go home and see what happened and and see yeah. the outcome. And it makes the matches seem so much more epic when they're like stretching out over a few days like that. I mean, that that just kind of reminds me of they do have like hot seat multiplayer in some games. Like I think what was that? Uh, Ghost Recon Shadow Wars on 3DS had that. Except for to me, that kind of sucks because it's just like you're just passing the control or the the entire system around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like that kind of alternating turn mechanic, and it does work well for board game style games. And I think that's something like Wii U might lend itself better to this, just because of the the nature of how they want to integrate the online system. Whereas I feel like with 3DS, and just the way that the online system is working, and the way that system is working, is that asynchronous would be a little more difficult to do. Not that we know shit about the Wii U online infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll find out about that soon. I would hope so. I mean, we do know that Meverse <laughs> intends to do a lot of things that they discuss yes. in asynchronous. It does player. intend to do a lot of things. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I guess we will move on to the next question. Uh-huh. You have this series of questions, which I guess will go one by one. Yes. This <laughs> is of course. The, of course. This is from <laughs> Kentucky Tim. Um uh, dude, I'm not reading all your questions because we actually answered a few of these. Well, um, well, let's just go. Let's let's go through. Um, it would be cool to see WayForward do a 2D Metroid, yeah. and uh, Nintendo should buy Sega, but under the current circumstances, <laughs> they really can't because they're they're losing money. Right. And it would be a it would be a harder thing to pitch the shareholders. Yeah. So his first question that we're actually going to discuss is. Should Nintendo acquire more Western second-party developers to replicate the success of Retro Studios? 
Could the buy could they buy out large sections of THQ to acquire Vol- uh, Volition and Vigil. Uh, Volition, uh, Volition and Vigil developed games. the Saints Row games and Vigil, and Vigil did the... Darksiders. Yep. What are some benefits to having this happen? Well, they, they don't need to buy them out because Vigil's making Darksiders a launch game for the Wii. Well, I mean, I think the idea would be having them work under Nintendo's Specifically, wing. well, I understand that, yeah. but there's no, I don't know if there's an advantage to that. Now, I do think they need to acquire more Western developers, but, but, They've been reluctant to do so, and and the reason they need to acquire more second party developers is is uh, Western second party developers. You know, we'll get to that question later, but um, they they don't really have Western developers besides Retro Studios, do they? Well, I mean, they have NST, which kind of doesn't really count. I mean, well, but no, because uh, that's a that they are like right by the, the I think they're a building next to the Redmond campus. <laughs> um, but NST, they did the Mario vs. Donkey Kong games. They did Metroid Prime Hunters. What else did they do? They and I know they've done a lot of I think the the eShop and DSI work back end maybe. They do a lot of kind of behind the he- behind the scenes stuff that we don't see as much because usually they're working on infrastructure because of how close. They're 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 in at Nintendo of America. Okay, well, Retro Studios is the only big name, heavy hitter second yeah. party developer they have, and they need more because they can't. First off, what the hell is Retro working on right now? Second, I mean, we'll, we'll find out soon enough, dude. Yeah, uh, no, we won't. We might find out uh, September thirteenth. Like hell, we will. Uh, but they need a second team so that they can develop other games while Retro's working on a game. You know, you can't just have one Western developer working on, you know, three Metroid games over ten years and then Donkey Kong Country. I mean, you need something else. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the thing is that Retro just takes their sweet-ass time. And um, it's good. But, they, but they are, they I mean, good games. They are working with uh, with Monster Games in Minnesota. They're working with Next Level Games in Vancouver. Um, and they, they do have an entire department that basically, uh, you know, works with Western Studios. Um, that's, you know, when they did stuff in Endspace, that's what happened. And they could have more stuff cooking. I mean, we only found out about the stuff with Platinum Games at E3. And, uh, that, that's, they, they basically, that's uh, Nintendo has two internal studios. One that basically works with, uh, you know, Japanese third-party companies. And then, uh, and then another that works with Western third-party companies. And that's the, yeah. the department that, you know, has worked with Next Level Games on Punch-Out, the Strikers games, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, out of curiosity, when you guys imagine Nintendo picking up more, uh, like, second-party studios like this, do you see them making original games, or do you think them putting, do you see them more, like, putting spins on classic Nintendo franchises? I see them doing the latter. I don't really yeah. think it's in Nintendo's best interest to make new IPs in that regard. I mean, you see them doing it a lot on eShop, and I would like to see... Uh, you know, more Western Western studios doing original stuff on eShop on a Nintendo's watch. I mean, look, at, look at Fluidity. That's that. I mean, the sequel to that. That's a that's a Western studio making that game and working with Nintendo. And I think at, at a lot of events like GDC and and all those meetings that they have with Western companies, it's usually kind of looking with an eye towards that. I mean, that's how. We, I mean, that we know that's how Fluidity happened. I'm pretty sure that's how Geist happened. Was that at you know some event Nintendo had a meeting with them and they liked what they saw. And I have a, I, I have a feeling that Nintendo is very picky about what they choose to nourish. 
Yeah. Sure. I wonder if that's why maybe we don't see more second party developers coming under Nintendo's wing. I mean, we know that the relationship with Retro hasn't been the smoothest, um, you know, with them being relegated to mostly making Metroid games and then Donkey Kong. Well, I mean, um, I don't know if you guys know the full story of Retro, but, um, Retro was founded from Iguana Entertainment, which you probably see their logo on a ton of games from yeah, like because I think they had an engine that they licensed out too. Um, I know NBA Jam was something notable that I always remember the Iguana logo from. But they did do Turok. And a lot of the, like, uh, so people left Iguana to go form Retro. And I think there was a president, his name was Jeff Spangenberg. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Johnny will, could, could write in and correct me on all of this, because he's much more knowledgeable about Retro than I am. But then, you know, so this one guy was the president, and then Nintendo came in and was working with them, and then basically kicked out everybody at Retro. And kind of put in their own team there and then work with them on Metroid Prime. And I think there were some holdovers from that. But then again, if you look at Metroid Prime, uh, you know, after one and two, I think there was another mass exodus. Uh, cause that's when right. Armature Studios, who I think had an EA Partners project that was in the works, but then got canceled and then worked on the Vita version of the Metal Gear Solid, uh, collection. Um, and that's, that's a mm. lot of, that's a lot of Metroid Prime 1 guys and Armature. And, you know, that team that made Donkey Kong Country Returns, there's not a whole hell of a lot of, of, you know, people still around from the Metroid Prime days at right, this point yeah. at Retro. They, they've gone over a lot of turmoil and, and this kind of notion about how they're this great developer, it's, it's kind of, I guess, to, to one point, it's a little shocking to me because, like, there is no notable figurehead from that studio. And I think right. that's kind of the Nintendo way. And I think it kind of shows you how Nintendo has become or Retro Studios has become that very, very good Western extension of Nintendo. And I think almost, they're trying to... a body shop. Yeah, like, I think they're trying to replicate that success with other studios, kind of testing the waters with your next-level games and your, uh, your, your monster games. And I feel like the next step for monster games and next-level games, I wouldn't be surprised if within the next five years either one of them gets shut down because Nintendo stopped working with them, or... You know, one of them gets bought up because Nintendo, you know, wants them to be a second party. Or mm-hmm. it could be like a Silicon Knight situation where they kind of, you know, worked on the one game, worked on two games with them, kind of probably had some kind of, you know, uh, omniscient view of the future with Silicon Knights and just bailed and, uh, mm-hmm. and then left them to their own devices. It could be something like N-Space where Nintendo's still kind of friendly with them, but just not working on any projects with them. Um, I mean, and then you see what happened to Rare is that, once again, they had a pretty good view on what the hell happened to Rare, because Rare ain't shit anymore. <laughs> Although I think, once again, the story with that is that the Stamper Brothers, who, you know, big big guys at Rare, they wanted to sell the company to Nintendo, and Nintendo was like, no, we ain't taking your shit, because they want it out. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah. I, th- I think there's definitely worth in, in going over Retro Studios' entire history at some point. But I think we'll save that for when we know what the hell they're doing right now. I hope they're doing <laughs> yeah. something good. Yeah. But I, so I think, next... I, 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 but before you get into that, I think next level games will be bought by Nintendo. Um, if Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon is received, you know, anywhere from good to great, um, then, then I think next level games will be a part of Nintendo within two years. Alright, um, so, let's see. Do you think that Nintendo will offer discounts for WiiWare and virtual console games as a way to celebrate the launch of a new home console, which by he must mean the Wii U. Could this be done in a similar manner to what Steam is going is doing for its summer sale program? 
No. No, no. At best, we will get a weekend sale. I think they will continue doing the kind of weekend sales, a lot more of that focus on one or two games that are on sale. And I wouldn't be surprised if shortly after the Wii U came out, we see that. I feel like they wouldn't do it right away, because then that kind of, like, I guess, you know... I mean, what we've seen from Nintendo lately is a lot of that, we're going to put the focus on this one thing, and there will be nothing else going on at this time except for this one thing. I mean, let's just go over the past couple months. We're in the fucking month of Mario. The only thing that has really come out is a 3DS XL and fucking Mario games. Yep. Last month was the 8-Bit Summer. Nothing really came out except for the stuff of the 8-Bit Summer. Um, when then, uh, what was June? I don't think anything came out. Oh, Pikmin, came Pikmin, out June, Pikmin June 2 and E3. That was the focus for that entire month. Uh, yeah. Nintendo does a lot more of this, you know, this focus on very singular things. So I think what would happen is that, like, we would have the Wii U launch. They would have that lineup, probably with a focus on the eShop. Either, you know, I mean, I think games will be available on eShop on launch day, but I think they'll probably have some sort of eShop focus at some point, and then they will yeah. go to this this discount focus with, you know, bringing in WiiWare and Virtual Console, and I think. I think what we'll also see is probably maybe maybe some more uh, WiiWare and Virtual Console stuff show up on Club Nintendo that would then work on Wii U. Sure. You know what I think will happen too is um I think I think we'll see something where when the Wii U launches they at least will offer one specific uh, item whether it's a Virtual Console game or uh, WiiWare or maybe even you know who knows maybe they'll dub it Wii Wear or something but um I wouldn't be surprised if we see something up for free because yeah. it seems like they're very keen right now on trying to like. Try to teach people how to use the eShop. The, the, when you three, bought the 3DS, it came with some amount of points. And then they also, like, gave you, um, Excite Bike for free. Yeah. Um, you know, to try to, like, try to, like, almost try to teach you to use the eShop. I know someone, um, someone had an interesting idea, uh, cause we're compiling, like, I guess Wii U launch predictions that will be going up before the September 13th event. And, uh, someone brought the idea of a Nintendo Land being sold piecemeal, which, I think is very interesting, although I don't think it'll happen. Um, because, well, I think it, it benefits pretty much everyone involved for that not to happen. Because even if this is a, a $50, $50 game, you think there's 12 different games in here, they'd probably sell them for at a minimum of $5 each. That's 60 bucks right there. Yep. Um, so we're, we're, we want it to be a, a full retail product. Or I guess, you know, just a full, a full compiled game, because it will be available for download, I assume. Um, but I think oh, the really big assumption. Yeah, well, uh, they have said that every, uh, at least every major first-party title, will be available for download on Wii U, and I think every every game will be available be, for download on Wii U. Be pretty hmm. great. Um, if not, then uh, I mean that, that might have been something that was kind of tied up in some kind of translation, and there might be some bullshit loophole like Miyamoto with the redesign on the 3DS. <laughs> um, I'm surprised we haven't seen uh, uh, earlier. Well, you know what? No, I'm not. I, I'm surprised if we don't see earlier 3DS retail games available on the eShop. I think it'll be a long time because, once oh, yeah. again, they will want it, it'll be probably happen sometime next summer when we're like, what the fuck? Nothing's coming out. And they'll be like, guys, Pilot Wings is Steel Diver. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll be on the download uh, the download announcement instead yeah. of a well, they'll split, console they'll, game. They will spread it out over two weeks, and was, those will be the only two things to come out on the 3DS during those times. <laughs> um, That's so depressing. But, I mean, I, I think that it probably will be something where, whether it's Nintendo Land being a download code that comes with the system, or, you know, having like, you know, a thousand point or I think it's ten dollars in credit. Um, something like, something like that to encourage people to go online. 
Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, last question? Yeah. Well, I guess there are two. Nope, just one. Uh, will Western third-party developers ever support the 3DS? Nope. Maybe. Next. <laughs> I think, no. you know what? We will Not see. until Nintendo buys a second uh, Western second-party developer and Indy? tells them to uh, <laughs> make some 3DS games. Indies on eShop. That, that's where we'll see Western third parties. I mean, mm-hmm. we already mm-hmm. kind of have. Um, sure. But I think that's that's where we will see that. It's because the big publishers, your your Activisions, your EAs, your Ubisofts, they're they're never really going to take portable seriously. They never really have. Um, well, I was going to say, were there any Western third parties that heavily supported the DS? Not really. No. I mean, the I mean, sure isn't getting any love. Yeah, I mean, you see, Activision puts out. I, I guess, I mean, not that all of it is crap, but for the most part, it's from their their Minnesota publishing arm, which generally just publishes licensed shit. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of stuff on DS and 3DS from there. But I mean, as far as like, I guess what you kind of class is like, you know, AAA or even AA titles. Like, you're not going to see that from many Western Western publishers. You'll see them from Western developers. I mean, Endspace will will always be around. You have your smaller developers. You have your your renegade kids, your your way forwards. I mean, they're they're always going to be there. At least I hope they will. If not, then I might get the fuck out of this business. Um, <laughs> but you have a lot of the smaller Western developers are showing up there because um, I think it is an attractive platform. If you do have that kind of style of Nintendo game, like a Mutant Muds, like a like a Mighty Switch Force. Yeah, I think Western. I think you're right. If Western developers are going to Come to the the 3ds. It's going to be on the eShop. Yeah. Lower lower barrier of entry. Right. It's the safest bet. I mean, shit. Ignition is releasing uh, retail games on the eShop with uh, order up and. Uh, oh yeah. That other one. I reviewed it. Planet Crashers. You did. Planet Crashers. That go. one. Yeah. So that the last question that we have is Dan from St. Louis, Missouri writes, "Dear Connectivity." With the three, new 3DS XL being released, I recently picked up a new DS Lite on the cheap, almost solely to play Metroid Fusion Zero Mission. This being my first handheld since the original Game Boy, which served 10-year-old me as a Tetris and Super Mario Land 2 device. Me too, buddy. Uh, <laughs> some editorializing. Uh, what are some GBA and DS games I should check out? I'm mostly into RPGs and adventure-type games. Thanks for putting together such a varied podcast week after week. P.S. I love the bonus segment where Zach talked about dinosaurs. I would like to hear more <laughs> bonus segments where each person talked about their real life, jobs, schools, etc., or something non-game related they're interested in. I guess to, to touch on that first, we do have one on this very episode that uh, you should listen to. Johnny yes. Metz talking about space. Yes, it's about um, space. And, and you can go back. Uh, I know at some point Zach and I and I think Jesse Waldack and another person, maybe, did a DC Animated Universe podcast. And... Uh, very soon you will be able to see that DC Animated Universe podcast being taken way too seriously as <laughs> Mac Patrick, Jesse Waldock from VG Tribune and I will be recording a Batman the Animated Series podcast starting uh, this week. Uh, I don't know when that will be edited and posted, but it will be getting recorded this week. Plus, I can tell you that with uh, Doctor Who coming back next weekend, or well, this weekend yeah. by the time you hear this, uh, I will for sure be getting people together to talk about that. <laughs> That is a promise. Yeah, well, or so. Batman or Spider-Man. That, that stuff will always happen. But I guess uh, yeah. definitely more interested in what we do in real life, because that, that can lead down interesting roads other than just nerdy shit that we like to talk about. That's why I write my Nerds and Men column. Yep. Um, so, first off, good good one on the Metroid Fusion and the Zero Mission. Both games are fantastic. Yeah. Um, I guess you're not an ambassador. 
uh, Merlson, you would like <laughs> to have fusion. Well, I think I think zero emissions actually the better game. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, both both are very good. I never really played fusion until being an ambassador. But, uh, really? Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was I didn't I, I, on the Game Boy Advance. I didn't really play it as as often. Like, I really didn't become a big portable gamer until like halfway through the DS. Um, and I never played Fusion Zero Mission, and then I bought them both cheap at GameStop, but the battery in my copy of Fusion was uh, dead. So I, I like, right. there was one time where, like, I sat down and played, like, two hours of it, but oh, I just, like, the, the battery was dead, so it was just kind of like, well, I want to see more of this game, at least. Um, but, uh, as far as what, what Game Boy Advance and DS games, if you like RPGs, uh, definitely the Final Fantasy Advance games, they have their issues, but still it's Final Fantasy, man. Um, Dragon Quest Nine. Yeah, that's a great DS game. All all three Dragon Quest games. Well, I guess all four. Uh, Dragon Quest Four, Five, and Six, and Nine are all Pokemon games. Uh, the Pokemon. Uh, I'm gonna say Radiant uh, if you have to pick a Pokemon game, pick the uh, Heart Gold or Soul Silver. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, Black and White are well, great, but I well, actually, if you've never played a Pokemon game before, go with Black or White. If you have played yeah. a Pokemon game before and kind of like you know want want to want to relive your fun, get Heartgold or Soul Silver. Yeah. Well, and the remakes of um, Blue and Red. Yeah. Um. You have I think what uh, ten five five generations of Pokemon games available on Game Boy Advance and DS. Because you got well, you got Ruby Sapphire, Fire Red, Leaf Green, uh, Diamond and Pearl, Heartgold, Soul Silver, and Black and White, and then you'll have Black Two and White Two in October. Yeah. That's a lot there. Yeah. Um, I would say um, it, it's in the news recently, but the world ends with you. Yeah. Uh, I'll be I'll be playing um, that soon. Maybe I own it. That's half the battle. Oh, you finally bought it? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that that's a great one. Um, you know, you know, what, as far as adventure games go, um, is it Hotel Dusk? I think that's the name of that game, right? Yeah. Does that sound right yeah. to you guys? Oh, yeah. I've never played that. That game is great. Like, I mean, especially if you like adventure games. I mean, it really is like... Isn't it like reading a book? Yeah. um, Yeah, kind of. I mean, you solve puzzles and stuff, and you have to, like, you know, you kind of click around. I mean, it's basically a point-and-click adventure. Um, And, yeah, and you solve puzzles. There's some pretty interesting stuff. Like, I I specifically remember one point where um, you you put together this puzzle, you know, like an actual puzzle of puzzle pieces, and... um, there's nothing on the front of it, but like you know, there's something with this puzzle. So you close your DS and then open it back up, and that's flipped the puzzle over yep. to the bottom screen, where oh, now you can see the back I, of the puzzle. I love that that moment. Yeah, that was so cool. There was, a was like Bloodstone, uh, the end space developed uh, James Bond game, it has something like that where you need to open it or close and open the DS. And I actually did that while I'm on a plane, and I very dramatically because I realized what I had to do. It was like, oh shit, bam, bam, and the person next to me is like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. That's great. I would really recommend Hotel Dust. That, that's a really cool game. Has um, anyone said Pacross 3D yet? Well, he said yeah. he likes RPGs and adventure. Yeah. That's neither. I, I'm literally, right now, I have, I have my game collection uh, Excel spreadsheet that I have that I'm looking for. Ghost Trick. <laughs> Ghost Trick is awesome. Ghost, Ghost Trick. Trick. Uh, Ace Attorney. Uh, all the Phoenix Wright games. I don't I don't know if it's expensive now or still is available, but um, Chrono Trigger. Yeah. Oh, Chrono Trigger that. is good. Yeah, Andy's sending me my copy back. He's never going to beat it. The Final Fantasy IV uh, remake is pretty good. That it's was very really, hard, really but good, it's yeah. very good. I liked that a lot. Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon is a pretty quality Fire Emblem game, or the two ones on Game Boy Advance. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other adventure games I have. I don't think I have Spirit any. Tracks, maybe? Uh, or Minish Cap? No. No. Mario Minish Luigi. Minish Cap is a Game Boy Advance game. 
Yeah, no. He, said game, he, he has he a PS Lite. He said G- GBA and DS. Oh, gotcha. Uh, Minish Cap is better than either of the DS games. Yeah, I would I would say that, and I haven't even played too much of Minish Cap. Uh, Mario and Luigi Bowser's Inside Story, and the yes. first one, Superstar Saga, one. not Partners in Time. No, not a good game. <laughs> um, Medios, just because it's Sakurai. <laughs> uh, Medios, Medios is great. Why haven't we seen another Medios? Uh, there were other Medioses. Uh, there was a Disney Medios game. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Picross 3D, Picross DS. Radiant Historia, uh, I think I mentioned that earlier, I don't know if we really went into it. That's probably, I think, the best original RPG in on, on portables in a long time. That's right, you like or, that game Or just lot. maybe at all. Like, I think this might be the best original RPG in, like, 15 years. What was that? What was that? Do you remember that RPG a while back that I reviewed? Uh, it was very old school. Um, God, one of the characters had a pistol. He was like a cowboy. You, you flew around in an airship right from the get-go. Nostalgia. Yes, that's pretty good, too. Yeah, that was, I, I would call that more mid-tier, but, I mean, it was oh, definitely yeah. a very interesting game. If you like the Grandia games, that would be one to go for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Layton games, especially if you like adventure games, uh, they're fantastic. There's four of them. Um, I feel like that... Are there any more G- Game Boy Advance games that you touch on? I don't. I don't um, have a, a large Game Boy Advance collection. The Golden Sun games, I guess. There's there's three of them across. Uh, Drill Dozer, just just because it's awesome. We talked Drill about Dozer, that. If you can find it. Yeah, we talked about that in the 2006 episode because that's when it came out, and that game's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Even like, I mean, he's probably played it. He just said he hasn't played a handle in a while. But the um, Link to the Past uh, GBA game is good with four swords. It is. Um. That's good. Um, I love the uh, Advanced Wars games. You know, if you have a DS, oh, it's not free anymore. No, yeah, you know, it's no. also not very good. The unless you, unless you have four people, yeah, 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 that's true. So never mind. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm, I feel like I'm hamming a wall. There's definitely more Game Boy Advance stuff. I just, I, I wasn't that big of a Game Boy Advance guy. Um, yeah, I don't have my collection in front of me, and, and my collection is mo- not really. Adventure or RPG games, but I mean, I think I think there's <laughs> there are easily fifteen to twenty DS RPGs. It was it was fantastic for that. You know what's not bad for GBA that he could play is the first um, uh, Mega Man Battle Network game. Oh yeah, those those aren't too bad. I mean, even even one of the DS games, it's it's a decent battle system with the stupidest fucking story in the world. Probably still <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite reviews that I ever wrote. <laughs> um. But, uh, I mean, there's some Shimigami Tensei games there. Devil Survivor, I know, is on that. I really enjoyed the The first one wasn't good, but the second one on DS of um, Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, I really enjoyed that. I put, like, over 100 hours into that, actually. Yeah, people like that game. Which is which is not normal for me at this point in my life, but I did that with that game, so that's very good. I don't know. There's, there's a really a lot to choose from. <laughs> I think we've given you a heck of a list so far. Um, all right, all right. Just because I want to do this, uh, I looked up that review of Mega Man Star Force 2 that I wrote. This was probably my second or third review for the site at all in mid-2008. And here, here's a line from it. The main character, as established in the previous game, is Geostellar, a fifth grader who just loves outer space. Apparently his dad went missing, and in his sadness, some weird internet wolf-looking thing named Omega Z's came... 
Together they form Mega Man. The game begins when a blimp advertising a movie crashes. Then, as Mega Man, you get the blimp up in the air. Geo Stellar takes the credit and scores free movie tickets for him and his three friends. Then they go to the city and hang out before the movie. They see the movie. Are you making this shit up? (laughs) They see the movie, but then some cheesy villain kidnaps a girl and takes her to the top of a tall building like King Kong. Mega Man rescues her, and then the gang goes on a ski trip where Mega Man eventually has to fight a Yeti. I kid you not, this is what happens. Later on, you go on a date with some pop star to a museum. Geo Stellar is a fifth grade pimp. That's amazing. (laughs) I kind of want to go and find this game again because it's so bad. But that's the thing, the battle system in those games are pretty fun. Story's just a joke. Wow. Well, it's hard to beat that. Yeah, I, I would say we've given you a heck of a list to start with, and if you just do a little research, I'm sure you can find more. I know there are more, like, specifically adventure games um, on the DS. I just can't, like, I'm drawing a blank right now, but Hotel Dusk is definitely, uh, it's interesting. Um, you can also check um, out, we have two features from the past year. Uh, like, I think we had, like, a DS Top 20 and a Game Boy Advance Top yeah. 10. Yeah. Uh, those would probably be able to help you, too. Talking about all those great DS games just makes me so sad for the 3DS right now. I mean, you know, you were just saying how, like, Nintendo's very focused right now, and it's they've kind of basically just pimped one thing per month right yeah. now. And then, like, listening to the um the that Nintendo year when, for 2006, when it was, like, every month something was coming out. Not even just something, like, some things, several games, and, like, yeah. all different varieties. I mean, types. I mean, that's the thing is that, like, and I guess this is kind of following up to, to a segment from last week's show, is when you do look at that, like, you do need to take into consideration that, okay, yeah, the GameCube was basically totally dead at that point, but the... Game Boy Advance was still very much alive. And that's one thing that I that I, I think needs to be taken into account when we look back on 2012 and compare it to 2006, which is an apt comparison, is that, one, the DS wasn't just hitting its stride like the 3DS is kind of... It was like the DS was fucking bigger than Jesus. Um, <laughs> I mean, or at least it was getting very near that point. And during that year, like, that's when it happened. That's when the DS became the, the biggest fucking system on the planet. And the 3DS hasn't hit that level, and I think until it hits that level, you know, it's, it's gonna be, gonna be a little tough. But then again, at the same time, like, Nintendo, if you only release fucking four games on the system for the first eight months of the year, yeah, system's not gonna take <laughs> off too well. And then I mean, and really, if you look at what they're doing in North America and Europe and compare it to Japan, it's a fucking joke. Like, Don't bring it, that it up. makes it's sense. Just depressing. It makes sense why in Japan, the 3DS is kicking ass, because even Nintendo themselves probably published more games in the span of June and July than have been published in North America by, or totally by, by Nintendo. Um, like, I mean, because you have, like, Calcio Bit, you had uh, Cold Sept, you had Onitore, you had New Super Mario Bros. 2. And during that span, on 3DS, we had New Super Mario Bros. 2? Yep. I even just tweeted, like, I really wanted to get, because like I said, I'm really enjoying playing the 3DS XL right now, and I tweeted for someone to recommend me, like, a retail 3DS game, because I was going to the mall, and I wanted to, like, take a look and pick something up, and I got some pretty good suggestions, but still, just, like, nothing was, like, nothing really, like, grabbed me, you know, like, there was nothing, I was like, oh, yeah, I have to get that. I mean, Um, I I look at it, and, uh, yeah, I have played a lot of 3DS games, and you know what, there are a lot of very good games on the system, but... I'm at a point where there's just, like, like out of stuff that's out now, there is nothing that I don't have. And I, I might be in a different position than most people, but at the same time, it's like, I don't got all this time. 
And like, I'm looking at like, like, cause I've been like kind of thinking of like, oh man, I want to, I want to make sure like I kind of clear up my 3DS backlog. And this has nothing to do with me being efficient and, and beating games and stuff. But I look back on that and I'm like, alright, I got about like three games. And like one of them is like two of them are games that I bought in the last month. Mm-hmm. You know, Kingdom Hearts and Heroes of Ruin. And other than that, it's like, well, I haven't beaten Resident Evil Revelations. And I, guess, I just replayed that. I guess maybe I'll go back and, and get the, the last the last bit of stuff in Pilot Wings. Like I thought about replaying Ocarina of Time 3D because I'm like, I want to play my 3DS, but there's just not many 3DS games I want to play right now. Yeah. Uh, well, how's how's Kingdom Hearts? Kingdom Hearts is great. Um, it's nice. fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I might end up going on a DS tear soon, which kind of like pisses me off because I'm like, I got this fucking new big ass system. <laughs> it's gonna make those games look so ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it's tough. And uh, I guess, we'll, like you said, we got to give it time. I mean, we'll see what happens in another year or so, but. I mean, there's just going to be good games on it, but it does remind me more of, like, the PSP where during the DS uh, years, where it's like the PSP had some really great games, but they were so spread out, and it was the same thing where it's like you just got one great game, like, what, maybe every quarter or every, even just every half year? Well, I mean, which just... is funny, because if 3DS is like the PSP, then what the fuck is the Vita? <laughs> the, Vita's yeah. the, the Vita's the fucking end game. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, is, like, I, I own both of those systems, and I love the shit out of both of them, and I just look at the game lineup for both of them, and I'm like, you know, this this might be passable, but, like, man, really? That's it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, if if we're talking about how I'm really wanting to find something to play on the 3DS XL, because I think it's sexy, I can only imagine, like, that feeling with the Vita, where it's this gorgeous hardware, but, yeah, there's just nothing you can do on it. You can't even play Chrono Cross. Oh, my God. Last night. Shut the fuck up. All right, can, can, we, can, we, uh, can we, uh, bitch it? Bitch it, uh, bitch it something. Why not? You want to bitch it something? Yeah, World Ends With You, uh, coming out to iPad oh, and iPhone. Right? And, okay, you know what? Like, neither here nor there. If more people <laughs> can play that game, that's cool. I haven't even, I'm not even really on the love train for it. I haven't really played it. But people are complaining because it's like 18 bucks on iPhone and 20 bucks on, on iPad. I bought this game fucking used three months ago, like four years after it came out for 20 bucks. I'm not complaining. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. If you want good games, you gotta fucking pay for them. Yeah. Like, quit getting, like, like, give up your little 99 cent charade bullshit. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I want the world ends with you for not, for a free sale. Yeah. Like, Ghost Trick. Like, oh, you know, the first couple chapters are free, but then you gotta, you gotta pay like six bucks for, for a quarter of the game. It's like, fuck you, it's worth it. Ghost Trick is fucking awesome. Ghost Trick is like, awesome. Like, if there's anything, like, I mean, we did have that iOS segment, and I think I, I would be considered one of the naysayers towards it. And, like, you know, for what's on iOS, the stuff that's on iOS, there, there's some good stuff there. But when you start having this kind of, like, this crossover between, like, you know, 3DS and DS and iOS and iPad and all that junk, and then, like, you have people complaining over, a, a as, as far as I know, and, Scott, you can back me up on this one, What what is labeled as a fantastic RPG that is a very long game, oh, yeah. and people are complaining because it's $20. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, it's just suffering from the platform that it's on. Yeah, I mean that's that's totally it. I mean, I'd rather have a game like that come to iPad or iPhone and be twenty dollars than like Cut the Rope or Plants vs Zombies come to DS and cost like six bucks or more. <laughs> you know that it's I'd rather have it where it's consistent pricing throughout than the price going getting jacked jacked up when it comes to like a Nintendo handheld. Yeah. So. All right. Well, um. 
I, I think uh, that, that just about does it for this listener mail and, and journeying segment that we went on. Uh, thank you. For hey, you know what else needs to be cheaper? Friggin' new Super Mario Brothers 2. Yeah, I you said know what? it. How about we just merge the two? Fuck it. Make World's End with you 30 bucks, and we'll make new Super Mario Brothers 2 30 bucks, and watch as everyone still complains. Done. Like, you know, I'm, I'm all for waiting for sales and stuff like that. That's all, like, I haven't gotten dust in a Legion tail on 360 because there's a stubborn part of me that, like, it'll probably be on sale for 10 bucks in, like, a year. Um, and that's cool because, you know what? World's End with you will probably be on sale at some point. But, like, I just, I am baffled when people think that, that, like, that game being $20 is a problem. Yeah. Like, I, I'm too. sorry. Like, what did you expect? People just need to go back to the Super Nintendo days where when Square Enix came out, they were like, oh, yeah. Square Enix games come out, they were like 100 but Yeah, like 80 to $100, and then we're like immediately rare. Um, so, yeah, 20 bucks ain't so bad. I remember getting Super Mario RPG on sale, on sale, for $70. I, mm-hmm. I fleeced a friend of mine because, well, I mean, I got my Super Nintendo probably like 2002. And, uh, you know, I got it, I was on the bus at school. Just in time for Wind Waker. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, it was like, I was at a flea market, uh, and, and I saw one for like 30 bucks with Star Fox. I'm like, okay, this is still in the box. This is great. Um, but I got that. And then like, I wound up talking to a lot of my friends, uh, cause we were all of the age. So like a lot of them had Super Nintendos when they were like, you know, five or six years old or whatever. And then, you know, now they're like 15 and they're not really playing it. And they're like, oh yeah, I got, I, I got these games. I'll sell them to you. So nice. I go over this one kid's house. And, uh, like, he lived right down the road from me, and he's got, like, 20 Super Nintendo games, and it's, like, fucking Super Mario RPG, Super Mario World plus All-Stars, like, um, I, I know there, there were some other, like, total fucking gems in there, and I was just like, so, uh, how much you want for these? And it's like, just $5 a game, I'm like, seriously? Oh my god. And I'm just like, alright, so I ended up, like, I think I, I think I gave him, like, maybe 30 or 40 bucks, and, you know, got, got six or eight games, and then a couple weeks went by, and, like, you know, uh, we're hanging out because, like, we used to, like, play, like, football and shit in, around the neighborhood. And he's like, yeah, man, here, just take the rest of them. I'm like, oh my really? God, he's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to do me. anything with them. Just, just take them. So that's how I, I wound up getting, like, probably, like, 15 to 20 Super Nintendo games that way. Neil, you realize that if there's a hell, you're going to it, right? I, I, like, I, was, I was like, like, dude, this feels wrong. He's like, I don't care. When you go to Gamer Hell, they hand you the original N-Gage and tell yeah. you this is all you get. Although, although, really, what I should have done is just been like, "Bitch, where's your Earthbound? Like, come on, <laughs> give that shit for me for free." That's that's still that is the one Super Nintendo game that I wish I had, but I don't. You should totally buy it. It's, you can probably find it for like a yeah. Well, I mean, bucks, I'm also you should just do it. I, I found I saw Earthbound at the comic shop the other day, Neil, and I bought it and threw it away. No, that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where like I'm also worried of piracy on eBay and the like. Um, sure, but. I don't know. Oh, there's piracy with my figures on eBay. That's why I, I buy figures on eBay. I don't, I don't really have the money to throw around to go get Earthbound right now. But if I did, oh, I would. Speaking of eBay, real quick, I'll give an update. I sold my 3DS on eBay for like 100 bucks, like I was telling you guys last yeah. week. Yeah, nice. And um, the, I sent it out last week, and the guy probably got it in the middle of this week. Well, this week's still pretty early. Probably yesterday. And um, he just emailed me and said that... Um, that the screen was broken, that when he opens it, it's, um, it's like it wobbles when he moves the system around. I emailed him back, I was like, sorry dude, that's just what happens. <laughs> like, that's, that's what happens. 3DS. <laughs> yeah. It's, my, my fucking XL was like that a little bit. I was all paranoid, and then it kind of just went to normal. Yeah, and then he was like, yeah, I called Nintendo, and because it's out of warranty now, it would be $85 to fix. I'm like, well, sorry bro, sold as is. <laughs> You're not getting your money back. No. 
I mean, that is a common problem. Yeah. That's, that's... Next to shoulder buttons will go out and they'll have grease stains on the top screen. You know, it's great having an XL. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yep. Sorry, bro. So uh, that will do us for this segment of connectivity. I've been Neil Ronahan, and I hope to continue to be me. <laughs> um, until next week, uh, as we're... Oh, shit, this is 49, isn't it? Yep, next uh, week's the big 5-0. Um, I have to write my questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll have something fun planned. Guys, we got we got some cool ideas for fifty. It probably won't blow your mind, but it could be pretty cool. Um, so this is uh this is connectivity listener mail, and we're all we're out. <laughs> Bye. Welcome to this week's End Focus. I'm your host, Nicholas Bray, and this week I'll be talking about the Nintendo 64 game, GoldenEye 007, as the game will be celebrating its 15th anniversary soon. GoldenEye 007 is a first-person shooter for the Nintendo 64, and was developed by the English development house Rareware. Launching on the 25th of August 1997, the game sold over 8 million copies worldwide and became one of the biggest and most important titles in the N64 catalogue. When early development began for the game, it was suggested that the title be developed and released as a side-scrolling game for the Super Nintendo, however, that idea was quickly discarded and instead the game started development for the N64, although at the time it was known as the Ultra 64. As the initial development of the game got started, the team began designing the game as an on-rails shooter, one of the inspirations being Sega's Virtual This train of thought in designing the early parts of the game helped the team to think of things that would later be held up as some of the game's best aspects. For instance, features like the position-dependent reaction animations and penalties for killing friendly characters came from various on-rails light gun games. Early on, the development team did not have access to final N64 specs and development workstations. The team had to use Silicon Graphics Onyx workstations and had to make estimates as to what the N64 would eventually be capable of. As it turned out, the final N64 hardware could render the polygons faster, but the game's textures had to be cut by half. One way performance was increased was to use lots of black and white in the texturing. RGB colour in the textures cost a lot in terms of the processing power, Apparently it was possible to double the resolution if it was done in grayscale, and if colour was needed it was applied through the vertex. The team also had to contend with having no N64 controllers initially, and had to resort to modifying a Sega Saturn controller. Another interesting controller tidbit is that apparently at one time, the team was thinking of having the reloading of weapons being possible by unplugging and then replugging the rumble pack, which may have been a fun feature but the idea was dismissed by Nintendo. The team utilised photographs and blueprints of the sets from the movie to begin creating various level environments. 
Using the Silicon Graphics Onyx workstations and Nintendo's NinGen development software, the designers aim to stick as close as possible to their reference materials for the sake of authenticity, but were not afraid to add or change elements to better the game experience. The levels were constructed without much thought on how the missions, enemy placement, and even the beginning and end points would be implemented. This unplanned approach benefited the game according to designer Martin Hollis, as many of the levels acquired a more realistic and non-linear feeling, as there were rooms and levels with no direct relevance to the overall mission. This also allowed different routes to be exploited by the player. The GoldenEye team was lucky in the sense that the development was not rushed to be completed close to the film's release date. The owners of Rareware, who were known as the Stamper Brothers, gave the team as much time as was needed. Even though the game was in development for around two and a half years, the multiplayer was considered an afterthought and was added late into the game's development. The majority of the multiplayer work was done by Steve Ellis, who according to designer David Doak, sat in a room with all the single player code and turned it into a multiplayer game. For this next part, I am going to read excerpts from various members of the development staff. The first is from Martin Hollis. In 2004, he gave a speech at the European Developers Forum. The part I am going to read discusses the AI in GoldenEye and his thoughts on how this affects gameplay. The entire speech is really interesting and can still be read at www.zunami.com slash briefing slash 2004-09-02.com. PHP. A lot of people talk about the AI in GoldenEye. In my view, the AI is not all that intelligent. There's a guard, he'd see you, either he'd attack you, or maybe run to activate an alarm. Some had patrol routes, some didn't, some just stood there. It was revolutionary for the time, but still not very clever. The important thing is to show the player the AI. There's no point in having sophisticated AI that the player doesn't notice. Your NPCs can be insightfully discussing the meaning of life, but the player won't notice if the game requires that they swing around a corner and fill the bad guys with bullets. So the intelligence has to be evident. The game mechanics have to showcase the AI. The level setup has to showcase the AI. And it all has to make an actual difference in actual gameplay. The first is an example of game mechanics. 
It so happens that enemies in Goldeneye can't see through many windows in the game. The player can see through and shoot through, but the enemies just won't see through. The window is opaque to them. This might seem like a bug. It is certainly unrealistic. It is an example of unrealistic gameplay, and, as it happens, it is pretty good gameplay. It means you can spy on people more easily. Which makes sense for a Bond game, and that is fun. Realism isn't relevant to good gameplay, only vermicillitude matters. The art is in knowing what you can get away with. Sometimes as a designer, you are surprised how much players don't object to. For example, enemies that can't see through most windows. Other times, players are very sensitive to unrealism. For example, if you shoot someone and somebody else nearby doesn't react. The window thing favours stealth, where stealth means not shooting your weapon all the time. If you refrain, you have the element of surprise on your side in more encounters. You know where they are, and they don't know where you are. It also increases the amount of tactics and strategy in the game, because you can see what the enemy is doing. If you can see what they are doing, you can think about it. In most shooting games, the enemy can see you at much the same time you can see them, which eliminates all strategy. The second example is of a level setup showcasing the AI. Bond enters a room and there are three guards. One runs to the alarm, the other two guards reach for their weapons. Bond faces a dilemma, who to shoot first. This scene, taken pretty much directly from one of the earlier screenplays of the movie, was one of the most exciting scenes for me. In terms of gameplay and AI innovation, I'd never seen anything like it in a game. Consequently, alarms and people running to them was a major part of the AI of the game, but the times when this cleverness on the part of the programmers and designers really counted was when you could see the NPC deciding what to do and doing it, that is to say, when it is showcased. Having good or revolutionary AI is nice, but you can only score points when you show it to the player by engineering situations and mechanics to do so. The AI in GoldenEye was held up to play so they could see it, and it made a difference to the gameplay, especially in regards to strategy. This next excerpt is from David Doak. Whenever you fired a gun, it had a radius test and alerted the non-player characters within that radius. If you fired the same gun again within a certain amount of time, it did a larger radius test, and I think there was a third even larger radius after that. It meant if you found one guy and shot him in the head and then didn't fire again, the timer would be reset. It wasn't realistic, but it meant the less you shot, the quieter you were, the less enemies came after you. If an NPC that hadn't been drawn and was just standing in a room waiting was alerted by gunfire, it would duplicate itself and one went to investigate. You can see it happening sometimes. If you go to the right place and make a noise, you see more enemies spawning. The next couple of paragraphs are a few thoughts from music composer Grant Kirkhope's website, you can go check out samples and find more information at his website, grantkirkhope.com slash granthome.html. Goldeneye was my first big title at Rare, although I didn't know it at the time. When I first got there in October 1995, I was put to work on the Donkey Kong 2 conversion from Super NES to Game Boy. I got this out of the way quite quickly, and was then asked if I'd like to help out on Goldeneye, as Graham Norgate was doing Blast Calls at the same time and was really busy. I knew we had the license to use the original Monty Norman theme, so I got started. It was immense fun to write that video game music. I don't know how many times I listened to all the past theme tunes from the movies, probably hundreds. 
It was the first time I had to do any sound design too. Finding lots of gunshots and over-the-top ricochets was obviously my first task. Something not a lot of people know is that GoldenEye wasn't always the fantastic game it turned out to be. Nintendo actually stopped wanting it for some of its development cycle. Rare didn't tell the team and let them keep making it, confident that Nintendo would change their minds, which of course they did in the end. Over the years, GoldenEye has gained more and more acclaim for what the team accomplished at the time. The game was groundbreaking, featuring intelligent level design which not only gave the player numerous objectives to complete, but provided varied gameplay styles depending on how the player wished to progress. Either you could go in guns blazing or try and sneak through the level slowly, trying not to alert the guards. However, the thing that became a surprise hit with the fans was the simple yet brilliant multiplayer. I'm now going to read some quotes from some reviews at the time of the game's release. This first one is from IGN. The game is brilliant in both the single-player mode, opening up new weapons each time a difficulty level is cleared, and in multiplayer mode, making it the best multiplayer game on the system, edging Mario Kart 64 by a hair. In fact, we can say with a clear conscience that GoldenEye 007 is the best single-player first-person shooter game on any system. And now another take from IGN. Rare took the first-person shooting genre and made a game that will stand out from the glut of Doom clones for years to come. GoldenEye sets a new standard on N64 graphics, sound, switch on that subwoofer, and multiplayer action. Despite some frame rate problems, GoldenEye is, without a doubt, the best movie-to-game conversion yet. The next couple of paragraphs are from GameSpot. Upon first seeing GoldenEye at the E3 convention, I was underwhelmed. I mean, here was yet another first-person shooter, with the only features setting it apart being the neat-looking sniper rifle and the fact that it was based on a movie that just about everyone had forgotten about. I couldn't have been more wrong. GoldenEye not only lives up to the quality, not quantity mantra that Nintendo continues to tout, it surpasses it. The sheer joy experienced by putting a bullet in some Russian's head with the sniper rifle from 200 yards never gets old and the countless mission objectives spread across 12 different environments and 3 difficulty levels 
ensured that the game has steam power of, dare I say it, Mario 64. GoldenEye is the type of game N64 owners have been waiting for since they finished Mario 64. It has outstanding graphics and sound, and contains a certain depth in its gameplay that really entices you to finish it on all three difficulty levels. If more N64 games use this as a model, as opposed to Cruising USA or Killer Instinct Gold, then perhaps the system really does have a shot at toppling the PlayStation's reign as the dominant platform. The last excerpt from a review is from Nintendo 64 headquarters. Much like Rare's other recent effort, Blast Cause, GoldenEye 007 is a pleasant surprise that is well worth the wait. Being the best movie-to-game translation ever, GoldenEye 007 lets you assume the role of James Bond. Unlike other first-person shooters though, this is not a kill-everything-in-sight kind of game. Aesthetically, GoldenEye 007 looks fantastic. First of all, fog in the game is virtually non-existent. Second of all, the character animation is fabulous. Characters will clutch where they've been shot and will die in numerous ways. Third of all, there are texture map faces on the characters that give the game even more personality. On the other hand, the game does slow down at times, though this is not a big problem. And there are some clipping problems in which a character's gun will appear through a door. Despite these shortcomings, GoldenEye 007 is arguably the best looking game on the system. going to talk about a couple of my experiences with the GoldenEye game and uh, just my, some of my general thoughts on the, the game as a whole. GoldenEye 007 was a game where I had played a few times at various friends' houses and uh, played multiplayer and stuff, but I never really had played single player all that much. It wasn't, it wasn't until, I think, Christmas... 2000, where my uncle expelled the virtues of GoldenEye to me about uh, throwing mines down hallways and watching the guards explode towards your face. At the time, I was playing Majora's Mask, and I think that Christmas holidays, I um, used the Christmas money I had received and ended up buying GoldenEye with, with the money. After that, I really did start to appreciate the single player a whole lot more and um, made it one of my goals to try and finish all of the difficulties, which I, I got pretty close to um, by myself, but there was a few later on, especially the Natalia missions, where I had to 
uh, well, cheat. Put some in, put, use some of the uh, push button codes to gain invincibility and that kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, the codes didn't help keep Natalia alive at all. One of my favourite levels in the game would have to be the facility. I really do love that map. I've even recreated it in uh, Time Splitters a couple of times. Um, I actually, yeah, got it pretty close in Time Splitters and even added a few more windows in various rooms to make it more sneaky, shoot people in the back when they're walking down hallways and stuff. As for the legacy of Goldeneye, it's kind of strange. The game, I think, is taking on such its own sort of mystical quality and as we've seen with the more recent Wii remake most people who love the GoldenEye game don't necessarily want more and more James Bond games they just want a game like GoldenEye I guess what I'm saying is that the team that put the game together ended up crafting an experience that reached beyond James Bond or the GoldenEye source material I'm now going to play an audio clip from NWR staffer Danny Bivens with his thoughts on GoldenEye. This is Danny Bivens, and GoldenEye for me was... Obviously, you can look back, back at it now, and you know you could talk about how, wow, it didn't even really look that great back in the day. You know, There are all sorts of problems with the frame rate and stuff like that, but I think GoldenEye is a lot more than just that. It was a great way to interact with... Um, you know, my brothers and my friends in just kind of a competitive kind of way. Um, I can't remember how many times, you know, I played multiplayer with my friends and family. Um, you know, Proximity Mines in the Caves, which is phenomenal. You can't see the little guys around, so you just kind of walk right into it and set off, you know, the chain reactions. But, like I said, for me, the experience of Gold Knight was completely something that had to be experienced in a community. Yeah, a single player was great and it was a lot of fun, but Multiplayer was definitely where it's at, and I have some of the best memories of that console generation, maybe even just as a gamer, from GoldenEye, from playing multiplayer. And now Scott Thompson will be sharing his thoughts and memories. So I, like most people, adore the multiplayer mode in GoldenEye, but I was also a big fan of the single-player campaign, uh, specifically unlocking cheat codes by beating levels in uh, certain amounts of time on certain difficulties. Now, one of the absolute hardest levels to beat uh, was Facility. Not only did you have to beat the level in uh, under 2 minutes and 5 seconds, but you had to play on the hardest difficulty. This meant that one of your objectives in order to beat the level was to locate a uh, scientist who was an undercover agent. Now, he would randomly spawn in different areas of the map each time you played the game, so there's no way of knowing exactly where he was going to be. So essentially, each time you played, you had one shot to find him, and if you went to the wrong room... Uh, then you basically had to start over. And for the life of me, I just could not get it. I was in middle school around the time this game came out, and uh, there was this kid, Dan, who I'd heard about. He was apparently some sort of uh, golden eye whiz. What he did is he set up a little money-making scheme for himself, and on Fridays after class, he would take golden eye cartridges from anyone who was having trouble unlocking certain codes. He would take them home over the weekend, and he'd bring them back and have the codes unlocked for you. And he would also charge you $5. So that day, I skipped lunch, saved my $5 bill, and handed it uh, over with my GoldenEye cartridge after class. And, lo and behold, come Monday morning, he had it back there ready for me with facility beaten and the code unlocked. Now, sure, it was a bit of an empty victory, but it was still totally worth it to 12-year-old me. 
and it still remains one of my fondest memories of the game. And that brings us to the end of another End Focus. I hope you enjoyed this 15th anniversary of GoldenEye. If you have any thoughts or comments, please post them in the talkback to this episode of Connectivity. Until next time, goodbye. You're late, 007. Well, I had to stop in the bathroom. Ready to save the world again? After you, 006. Alright, and that will do it for episode 49 of Connectivity. As always, you can send us listener mail to connectivity at nintendoworldreport.com. If you get a chance, you should follow all of us on Twitter. You can go to the Twitter sidebar at nintendoworldreport.com to find all our Twitter handles. And be sure to tune in next week for episode 50. We've got a lot of great stuff planned. We'll see you then. Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Hello everybody and welcome to this segment of Connectivity, a bonus segment actually. Uh, I am with Dr. Jonathan Metz today. Hello. Hello, Johnny. And uh, we're going to be talking about space. Um, Johnny was feeling inspired after the bonus segment we did with Zach about dinosaurs, so following the same pattern, he uh, posted something on the forums and got a bunch of questions uh, from everybody, and I think it'll make for a pretty interesting segment. I will say we got a lot more questions about space than we did dinosaurs, so I guess that <laughs> shows, shows where people's interest is. Yeah, I think space is... Um a topic that most people have some interest in or have some questions about. And most people don't really know where to go for answers on that. So 
I'm probably not the best source, but I figured I am in some position. And space is something that I, as much talking as I do on the internet and writing as I do on the internet, I really don't get into space all that much. It's my, that's my day job. So uh, I thought it would be fun to do this. But I, I do want to say, first off, these are all my personal opinions or my personal take on the facts, uh, you know, depending on the question. So I'm not speaking for anyone else. I'm not representing any company or organization. Um, this is just, just my, my take on things. But I'm, I'm hopefully it will be informative. Yeah, so if you use, like, Johnny's opinions to write, like, your college thesis and then you get it back and it's just completely wrong, uh, don't blame Johnny. <laughs> I think that's, he just does not want to be culpable for any, uh, trouble you get not graduating college. Um, yeah, but you can reference my papers all you want. There you go. He's got sources. <laughs> so, um, I, I guess turning to a little bit more of a serious note before we start with the form questions, um, just the, the time in here yesterday, um, Neil Armstrong actually passed away, the first man on the moon. And it seemed like uh, we'd be remiss not to mention that now, um, so, Johnny, do you want to talk about Neil at all? I mean, I don't know if he was any inspiration to you in, in any way. Yeah, of course he was. I mean, Neil Armstrong is an inspiration to everybody, I think. And he's one of those um, he's one of those people who I think, you know, at the time the Moon program, the Apollo program, was very political, is very nationalistic on the United States part. And it was seen that way by a lot of people, but when they finally landed on the moon and, and Armstrong and Aldrin actually had their, their moonwalk for the first time, I think at that point it, it really ceased to become something that only America could claim, and it became this global event that people all over the world took part in and took pride in. Um, and, and so once we, you know, quote unquote, won the space race, the, the race was over and it was really kind of everyone celebrating it. It's a, a very rare, special moment in, in the history of human civilization. And I think since that time, Neil Armstrong really is someone who can be, um, admired and, um, and remembered by people everywhere. And, and that's one of the things that struck me. I mean, I was reading things. I was in the mountains yesterday when I found out about this. And, you know, I had to break the news to some of my friends. A lot of them are aerospace engineers as well. And it, it, um, it, it was tough, you know, it was one of those things that hits you. I mean, he was in his eighties and had had uh, heart surgery recently. So it wasn't the most surprising thing, uh, but it, you, you can't quite be prepared for that. And I think Neil Armstrong is someone who, um, more than the average, celebrity or just famous name um you know when you when you lose someone like this who's really a, a not not just an american treasure but a, a global treasure uh one of the the most famous and and will be one of the most remembered humans who ever lived for all time and uh, when you when you lose someone like that it does kind of hit you in a personal way even though you never met him never spoke to him don't know that much about him. in fact probably nobody really knows that much about neil armstrong Mm-hmm. He was a very uh, private person, but um, I, I think you can't help but but feel affected by it uh, somewhat. And 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 one thing I kind of want to would like to focus on um, when you think back to you know when you sort of remember Neil Armstrong and what his legacy is is um, it's you know it's been almost forty five years ago since uh, Apollo eleven and. It's very easy for us to forget, I think, just how dangerous the whole mission was and how scary it was mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and how completely unprecedented it was. And we eventually sent five or six missions to land on the moon. 
and ultimately about a dozen people uh, walked on the moon. So at some point it starts to feel like, okay, obviously this is possible, obviously it's survivable, obviously, you know, people are capable of doing this, and then at some point, you know, we stopped. But I think if you go back uh, and, and try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's like literally traveling to the moon and landing there, it just seems absurd even to say it out loud. Right. Uh, it, it's such a insane thing to, to even try to do. And, um, you know, for, you know, tens of thousands of years, most, you know, most humans thought it was completely impossible. And the fact that we actually did it in a fairly short period of time, about 20 years of, of technology development for most of what they use to, uh, to go to the moon, is, is just really remarkable, and, and I try to put myself in the shoes of being literally the first man to go out and do that, even really all three of those guys, Michael Collins and, and Buzz Aldrin as well, but especially those two guys who actually uh, landed on the moon and then got out of the capsule and walked around and then got right. back in and hoped that all this technology would actually work and it would actually get them home. Exactly. The With, with the pressure of literally the entire world on your shoulders, like hoping that you pull it off. That is really frightening to me. I mean, to, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine having the guts to actually go through with that. You know, it's, it's easy to say now, well, you know, it'd be really exciting and it would be fun and I'd love to go do it. I don't know how much these guys were looking forward to it. I mean, you have to be, they were test pilots and you kind of have to have that kind of crazy attitude to even, uh, to even, you know, agree to do something like this. It's it's a lot easier to be the third or the fourth or the fifth guy on the moon than it is the first. I sure. guess that's my point. And that's, you know, so I, I think above all else, Neil Armstrong is just a, a very, very courageous, brave person who is willing to put his life on the line for what some people even today think it was, it was kind of a silly objective. Um, but he thought it was important. And mm-hmm. um, I think history will agree with him. Yeah. And, and I do... Um think it's a great point to bring up the fact that not only did it, it unite the country in that moment, but like you said, the entire world, which in my lifetime, I can't think of another moment uh, in history that's done that. I Certainly mean, not something positive. Right, exactly. Like I think of, you know, negative things like maybe something like 9-11 united right. the country in those those moments immediately following it, right. um, but nothing positive, nothing where people are celebrating. Like I, right. for, I, I don't know. It's just, it's amazing. And to think that we live in a time now where we haven't had something like that, like, I just can't imagine what it would have been like to live through that um, and just to experience it. I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah before no, yeah. I was born, too. But, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it, was, it was a very sad moment, but, um, you know, I think uh, I, I, have, I have met a couple of people who walked on the moon, and um, it's, it's, it's kind of life-changing when it happens, you know, I mean, to – to, uh, to come into contact with someone who's had that kind of experience that is uh, so rare and, and so profound. Uh, and, and one thing I, I have found about a lot of these uh, people who, who, a lot of the older astronauts, especially these kinds of people, is that um, even into their very old age, 80s and 90-year-old, um, they, they are still really intelligent and really aware of what's going on in the world and in space. And uh, are very easy to talk to and are just really impressive people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, um, it you know, it, to me, it, it's very reassuring that um, having a, an intellectually stimulating life will help you uh, to enjoy that life uh, all the way to the end. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, that's definitely been said. It, you don't have to go to space to even have that. I mean, no, <laughs> of, course, of course not. Right. But yeah, just, just, you know, keep, keep challenging yourself and trying new things and, and always pushing yourself. And right. yeah, it's a great way to stay, um, you know, aware of what's going on when you're older like that. So, all right. Well, I think we'll go ahead and move on now to the, uh, the form questions. Um, uh, actually, we'll go ahead and start with, with one from me. I didn't post on the forums. Um, this one will be a little bit more personal. I just wonder, like, what got you interested in space? Um, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, like, you feel like science fiction as a kid, or if there, if you've just always been fascinated, like, with just looking up at the, the sky, or, you know, what, what got you where you're at today? Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, as long as I can remember, probably back when I was five years old, I, uh, I would tell people I wanted to be a scientist, but when you're five years old, you don't really know what that means, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no one, no one's job title is scientist, by the way. It doesn't right, exist. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as a generic scientist. Just walking um, around with beakers and a white lab coat. <laughs> right. So I kind of had that mentality from a very early age just because I, I was interested in figuring out how things worked. And, uh, as I got older, I, you know, I, I became really interested in, in airplanes and spaceships and, uh, was definitely, uh, very much into science fiction, which has been a catalyst for many, many, um, aerospace people over the mm-hmm. past hundred years. And, um, I think what really pushed me over and made me totally obsessed with uh, with space and really feeling like that's kind of where I wanted my career to go was when I was probably 14, we took a class trip, and I was in middle school, and we took a class trip to Washington, D.C., and we didn't go to NASA headquarters or anything like that. I'm not, I've never actually been there. I'm not really sure what there is to see at NASA headquarters. I think it's mostly offices. But right. Um, we had someone from NASA, and I don't know his name, I don't know what his position was, but some representative from NASA, maybe from the education office, came and, uh, and sort of gave a presentation to our class uh, at the college where we were staying for the week. So this was just a nighttime activity, and they came to us. And this guy gave this wonderful, you know, probably 60 or 90-minute presentation about sort of explaining some things about space and why we go there and why, you know, what's it like in microgravity and how are things different there versus here on the ground. And, uh, and there was this long Q and a where all the kids got to ask him all these questions, you know, a lot of the cliche questions that kids ask, which often are actually really good questions that are not easy to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, it wasn't even so much that I thought this guy was so cool, but I just thought the topics he was discussing were so, so cool. And I think, um, that was probably the point where I started really looking into uh, aerospace engineering as a, as a, uh, you know, a career path that I wanted to set myself up for. So I sure. started figuring out what do you need to study in order to do that, and what are the good schools for it, and things like that. Cool. Yeah, it'd be pretty amazing if you could track that guy down and like write him a letter and like yeah, say really. like, thanks, you know, like I'm where I'm at because of a speech you gave us one night. You know, that's yeah. pretty incredible. It was, like, uh, Fifteen or sixteen years ago now. Yeah, I mean that's great too that you can pinpoint it to one like specific moment like that. That's pretty amazing. It's one that sticks out, but I think it's ultimately a a, a much longer process. Sure, so, yeah, I mean, a culmination of things. Jean Luc yeah. Picard probably has as much to do with it as anything, <laughs> but but that's not not quite as impressive an answer. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. And that would explain the Jean Luc uh, Picard poster that's hanging on your bedroom wall. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to some form questions then. I'm just going to kind of pick these uh, at random here, I think. 
Um, let's see. Um, so the first question I'll ask uh, comes from our own Carmine, and he uh, asked, who owns space? Like, what international treaties govern the use of space? Uh, yeah, so there there are treaties in place. Not every country has signed them, of course, but most of the, you know, the industrialized nations that actually have access to space uh, or traditionally have did sign them. And um, there are several, actually. Some of them are maybe overlapping a little bit, but basically the treaties say no one owns space, no country from Earth can own a planet or a moon or an asteroid. Hmm. Um, so even though, um, like, the, U the United States planted an American flag on lunar soil in 1969, that doesn't mean that we own the moon. It just sort of means, hey, we were here. And that flag is, I'm not even sure that it's legally still the property of the United States because it's sort of been abandoned there since then. Um, I think, actually, the original flag has fallen down because they didn't, um, uh, they didn't, cement it hard enough into the ground, and then when the lunar lander blasted off and went back into lunar orbit, the the thrust from the the lander actually knocked it over. <laughs> but they but they set up other flags on the later missions, and okay. uh, all, they actually left a lot of equipment up there. Some of them were were science experiments. Some of it was just equipment that they didn't need. You know, those rovers are still up there. The the lunar buggy is still just sitting there. They didn't bring it back. So right. um, all that stuff is still there. And yeah, I mean the 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 legal Questions get kind of murky when you when you talk about things like, um, especially in Earth orbit, like liability. Like, what if if two spaceships crash into each other? Who's legally at fault, and what are the repercussions? And you know that kind of thing is really murky, right? Um, and then you always have to worry if the other spacecraft, you know, had full coverage or just partial, and you know, with their insurance. <laughs> so that's always a headache. Yeah, they, I mean, spacecraft, I think, are insured to some extent. I mean, certainly the participants are insured. I don't know that the vehicle itself is yeah um but you know I, I i i was asking talking to someone recently and a, a question came up about um if someone died in orbit which has never happened no one's ever died and not no human has ever died in orbit mm -hmm. uh, but if they did would that whose jurisdiction would that fall under would that be like an fbi investigation or would it be the national transportation safety board which investigates airplane crashes or would it be the FAA? Um, it's not really clear, and a lot of these jurisdictions are not well-defined. And, and that's a, a pretty hot like area of, of study and debate right now is uh, because we're hoping to send more and more and more people up there in, in the pretty near future. Some of these questions are going to have to be answered. And right. It's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens with that. And you almost wonder if what's going to force those answers are, you know, something bad happening. Right. Um, I hope we can settle some of this stuff before... We have some kind of crisis, you know, right? But that's probably what it'll take. Huh. Well, that's that's interesting that they've spelled it out so far ahead that they've already decreed that you can't own, no country can own a planet. Um, yeah. Well, this was, I didn't know that. This was a uh, this was a real concern for people back in the fifties and sixties when the space age was first beginning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the when 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 the Soviet Union first launched Sputnik in in fifty seven. It really freaked people out because now you have this Soviet machine that's flying over American soil. Right. And the, of course, Sputnik was basically an antenna. I mean, it couldn't do anything. It had no moving parts even. Mm -hmm. But people were freaked out. They were like, they're going to drop bombs on us from space. You know, right. or they're going to do all this weird stuff. They're going to try to like send people up there and have them land and invade our country, which is all ludicrous, especially with the technology of the time. 
But people really freaked out about it, and that's where some of these treaties started to come from. And especially, you know, sending humans to the moon, it's like, are they going to try to claim it, you know, just like uh, the Spaniards did, you know, back in the 1400s? I mean, exactly. As it can all just be like this huge, like, colonization effort where you're just going, you know, grabbing planet and planet. Right. Anytime you explore new territory, these questions come up. And it, it, it seems uh, archaic nowadays because there isn't that much exploration going on anymore, especially on Earth. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, these, are, these are still important political and, and legal questions that, thankfully, we do have treaties. I think, they're, I think a lot of people feel like they need to be updated because they're pretty old at this point. But mm-hmm. uh, you can go online and find all these treaties about, you know, the ownership of planets and things like that. It's pretty cool stuff. Cool. Well, here's another question I think uh, you'll particularly be interested in. Um, Kentucky Tim, as we call him, asks, would privatizing NASA yield better results that are cheaper? I think a free market approach to space travel would get us to Mars a whole lot quicker. Well, okay, so without getting into the the politics of this, which um, are very murky and and not nearly as clear-cut as you might expect, um, Suffice to say that NASA works very, very closely with private businesses, and they always have. And the space shuttle and and even the Apollo uh, spacecraft were built by private companies. NASA designed them, and NASA oversaw a lot of the development of those, and ultimately NASA owned them. But they had private contractors that built all that stuff, and NASA has been using private contractors for the past 50 or 60 years. So... The question of, you know, like, is the space program government, is it really a government program or a private commercial program is not nearly as straightforward as most people think it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's evolving in some really um, subtle and profound ways that are pretty hard to explain if you're not already pretty familiar with the way things work currently. Sure. Um, and that's another topic maybe I could get into another time, but it's a pretty deep topic. You have to understand more about space history and how things have been done in the past before you can understand how they're changing. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get into the details of it right now. Um, but it's interesting that, that, uh, that he specifically brought up travel to Mars because I think that is uh, – and this was discussed in the forum thread also. But uh, that particular example is one where I don't really think um, – having private industry lead that effort makes any sense whatsoever because I don't think there's really an economic uh, drive to send people to Mars. And, right. and maybe there could be in 50 or 100 years, but right now there's certainly not. So if you look at the investment that's required to send people to Mars, it is literally tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think it's a very hard sell to a private investor that they should put up that kind of money right. for for what may or may not be an actual return on investment once you get there. I mean, you you might succeed and you might get people there, but how much money you're actually going to make from sending a person to Mars and bringing them back? Right. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense Probably in terms zero. of zero. Right. In in terms of wanting to make money, it it doesn't make much sense. Right. Um, I mean, you could sell advertising on the spaceship or whatever, but. It just it just seems like a like a drop in the bucket compared to what it costs to actually do it. So it's one of those things where um, you know private industry is you know primarily driven by money, yeah. and uh, it's hard to do things that aren't really money driven with private industry for that reason. Right. Yeah. So, it seems it seems more feasible that private industry would be interested in like taking people into space for short amounts of time. You know, like into orbit maybe and then back. 
Yes, um, and, and they are and, they are interested in that. Although yes. the business model for that is still not proven, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are trying it because the investment is still very high, but much, much, much lower than something like like going to Mars. I mean, ultimately, right. uh, human exploration has never really been a market driven uh, effort. Uh, it, it's it's usually funded by governments, uh, including you know like monarchies back you know a few hundred years ago. Uh, but it's primarily driven by governments, and then the free market will come in after that uh, because they see an opportunity. But they're sure. not willing to take the upfront risk, um, and and the risk even you know sending Columbus on a ship uh, out to look for a, a you know a shorter passage to the to the Indi- to India. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk for that was still not even remotely close to to what we're talking about going to other planets. Right. So it's just. There's really apples and oranges here. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's a very it's a big monetary risk. The kind that if it didn't work could probably put maybe even your company in jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's a big investment. Exactly. And you know, whether you like it or not, uh, you know, and this is the way I would characterize it, maybe other people don't, but space programs are basically a facet of a technocracy. And when the Soviet Union originally sort of started this this effort back in the 50s, uh, a lot of people didn't feel like the United States should get involved in this kind of thing because it basically involves government developing technologies and, and pushing industry, like providing a lot of money directly to industry to build things so that the government can do something that's not necessarily um, economically driven. Mm-hmm. And, and it, uh, does, it doesn't seemingly help people in much way. You know, the citizens of America didn't necessarily benefit from, you know, moon exploration. Uh, oh, I, I think they absolutely did. I mean, you and I wouldn't be talking over computers right now if it weren't for the Apollo program. But it's not direct. It's not obvious how these kinds of programs uh, directly benefit people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can make the case that they do, and I think it's a pretty easy case to make. But it's not it's not really really easy to make that connection. Right. So um, Russia did it because they uh, they wanted the the uh, prominence, they wanted the bragging rights, and they felt that by putting a lot of the government's money into this program, it would help them develop technologies that could be used for military and other purposes. Um, so it's a technocracy. It's the idea that the government is spending money on technology uh, for whatever purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not a traditional, you know, you're going, going back hundreds of years, it's just not a traditional purpose of government to develop technology. And uh, the Soviet Union sort of pioneered this, and a lot of people in the West felt that it was not a good idea. You know, it was a sort of part of communism and whatever. Um, but when they flew Sputnik and they scared the crap out of most Americans, <laughs> uh, we decided that we probably should try to do the same thing. And we did it in our own way, and we used a lot of private industry, and it, you know, it created a lot of jobs, and it did create a sense of national pride. Although even back in the 50s and 60s, all, you know, the, a lot of people felt we were spending too much money on NASA and the space program. A lot of people didn't really think it was worth the effort. Sure. But in that setting, they could at least frame it as like possibly some uh, amount of like defense, you know, from Russia getting too, I guess, technologically advanced. Um, more so than just like if there was no impetus, they just decided to start putting all this money into going to the moon. Sure. Um, you know, I think I think they could use that defense to get more people on board, which you know, I'm, they did. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, these you know the, the supporting space program, and a, a lot of people say they su- support the space program, but when it comes to dollars, uh, they differ greatly. 
and uh, and their understanding of what the space program does and, and why it exists and what it's for, what it's good at, what it's not good at. Very few people understand this very well at all, and it's it's ultimately NASA's fault for not explaining it to people. Mm-hmm. And it's the, you know, it's the U.S. government's fault for not explaining it better to people. But the, the, the ways in which these programs are funded and the way decisions are made do not fall into political party lines uh, at all. They really don't. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, a lot of people's uh, uh, stances, uh, politicians in, in particular, a lot of their stances on how they support the space program are almost completely opposite of how they would otherwise approach funding government programs and things like that. So um, it's, it's really complicated, and it, it's not surprising that a lot of people don't understand it. Yeah, I guess that you don't really hear that as a, a big uh, platform for <laughs> any candidate, you know, oh, no. talking about the, the space program, um, at least not anymore anyway. Um, all right, well, let's move on. Um, you've kind of touched on this, but we can have you elaborate a little bit. Um, Black and Mild asked, if we were able to get to the moon so easily back in 69, why hasn't uh, there been a more, why hasn't it been a more frequent thing, especially considering that the computers on the ships back then were less powerful than a current Model TI calculator? So uh, a Black and Miles question, he, he put quotation marks around so easily, um, which is smart because I hope he realizes that getting to the moon in the 60s was probably the hardest thing we've ever done, technologically speaking, and also one of the most expensive. And that's, that's the real key because although the, you know, things like computer technology have improved vastly since the Apollo days, and partly because of what we did during Apollo, the, the, the tech that we developed during that period, um, has been very, very important to the advancement of computers and a lot of other technologies since that time. The real key technologies, like the, the, the really hard, difficult, expensive stuff is the rockets. And rocket technology, chemical rocket technology, has not developed that much since 1969. And it's not going to. Chemical rockets are very well understood. And uh, there is a, a fair bit of development on sort of the, the less powerful, uh, less efficient side to use green propell- propellants and, and things like that and to try to increase efficiency with different nozzle technologies. And you know, there's, a, there's a few areas of research, but for the most part, you can't do much better than liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, which is what the Saturn V used to get to the moon. And we could always make bigger rockets than Saturn V. That's still the biggest we've ever flown. Uh, but it's going to cost way more. And uh, and we already, I mean, we couldn't build Saturn V right now on NASA's budget. You can't do it. You know, I mean, it's just impossible. NASA's budget was much larger back in the 60s, and it's because they wanted to get to the moon, and they wanted to do it really fast. So after that, they started cutting cutting this, cutting that, cutting the budget. And, uh, you know, I think what NASA's been able to do since then is pretty impressive uh, considering the budget that they've had and some of the technical challenges that they've pulled off. And, you know, in a lot of ways, things like the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station are much, much more sophisticated technology than what we went to Apollo on. But they're not designed to go really long distances, and they're not designed to land some land people on another planetary body like the moon. They have different purposes, and we haven't really been developing those technologies nearly as much. There's all these sort of background programs at NASA all the time where they're working on new lunar landers and new spacesuits and new new things like that. Uh, But they don't really get that much funding because we don't have a program to, to really push for that. So, I mean, ultimately the main question... The main answer to Black and Mild's question about, you know, why would it be so much more difficult now to go back to the moon is because uh, 
we're not going to spend a trillion dollars to go back to the moon. And that's, I think that's on, on the order of what we spent back in the 60s if you add it all up. And that's just not going to happen, you know, because everybody say, well, we've done that before. We're not going to spend that kind of money to go back. Right. So they're, they're asking us to do it on, you know, 10% of the cost. Well, that is incredibly challenging. So that, that's ultimately the main reason why, why we, it's hard to go back to the moon. There's also not that much political or public will to go back to the moon. You know, I think there, there's a lot of great, uh, scientific and, and engineering reasons to, to do that. Uh, but most people don't really care if we go back to the moon. They say, well, we did that and we, you know, we don't really need to go back. We sort of proved that we could do it. And now let's move on to something else. Sure, like we've kind of seen all there is to see there, so let's, you know, we don't need to keep yeah. going back. Which which is ludicrous. I mean, we landed there, <laughs> you know, five or six times, and there was all around the equator. We saw tiny, tiny patches of the moon. Uh, we explored very little of it. And, um, you know, but it, it's difficult to make a case to go back to the moon. And at this point, it's difficult to make a, a government-funded case to go back to the moon for the reasons I just described, but it's also extremely difficult to make a private commercial reason to go back to the moon because the moon doesn't have a lot of resources that we really want. Mm-hmm. And even if it did, it would, ha- it would have to have, I mean, the, the resources there would have to be extremely valuable to make it worth trying to bring them back. Right. And it's just, there's nothing even remotely close to that. Uh, and, and there's also, again, there are a lot of legal issues over whether it's you, whether you could even go to the moon and mine things and bring them back for commercial purposes. You know, we brought back a lot of moon rocks from the Apollo program. We did that for scientific and research purposes, and those are owned by the people of the United States of America. So, uh, you know, we, sending a private company and just digging up whatever the hell you want to, I mean, you don't have the, the mining license to do that. You don't really have any any legal uh, claim to ownership for whatever you dig up and bring back. So if you bring it back, are you going to be able to sell it? That's not clear at all. That's true. Um, and I'll, I may be simplifying it a bit, but would you say then that the, um, you know, saying Curiosity to Mars, that was a cheaper venture than one of the Apollo flights? Or is there any way of even knowing that right now? It was absolutely cheaper. Absolutely. Okay. Anytime you put humans into a, a spacecraft, you've just made it orders of magnitude more difficult and more expensive to do. Sure, even just in terms of, yeah, just life support systems and having to fly back, yeah. But but Curiosity is um, a, a, just an incredibly ambitious and impressive uh, program, um, not just because it actually landed and is working now, but just to even attempt it is, is kind of amazing to me because you've got a vehicle that is so large that you can't run it on solar panels because Mars doesn't get enough sunlight to, to do that effectively. So mm-hmm. it's it's new, that's why it's nuclear-powered. It has a radio... Radioisotope thermal generator, which is basically just kind of a block of uranium that decays over time, and as it does that, it creates heat, and they use that heat to produce power. It doesn't produce a lot of power, but it does it very consistently, and it and it will last for a long, long time. So that's why they had to make it nuclear powered, and because it's so large, they can't land it on airbags uh, or or parachutes uh, like they have previous rovers because the Mars atmosphere is so thin that parachutes don't work that well. And airbag technology just it doesn't absorb enough of the impact to to rely on that alone, and that's why they had this insane sort of rocket crane thing where they sort of lowered it down, and they had this thing up above shooting retro rockets to slow it down. Yeah, um, that's that's what you have to do, um, and you know that there are a lot of challenges for landing on Mars that make it actually more difficult than landing on the Moon, but. The key thing is that we're not ever getting Curiosity back. I mean, that that rover will stay on Mars for eternity, 
And because you don't have to bring it back, you don't have to carry the rocket fuel to bring it back, which means you can make the rover bigger. And the really difficult thing about taking people to anywhere is that you would expect to get them back. And getting <laughs> them back yeah. is actually the absolute most difficult part. Right. Un- and understandably so. I mean, the the moon being the closest thing, I mean, that's probably why it was, you know, most feasible, obviously. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you're trying to bring someone back, I mean, you're carrying twice the fuel, if not more. I mean, I'd, you'd have to... Imagine taking off from another planet would be maybe more difficult than Earth. I don't know. Uh, well, maybe it's not, not necessarily more difficult. The gravity is much lower. That's why the I mean the lunar lander that that returned uh, astronauts from the moon is not very big, and the rockets on it aren't very big. But the moon has one sixth of Earth's gravity. Mars has a third, so it's uh, it's much more difficult to take off from Mars than it is the moon. Sure. And then you have a year and a half journey to get back, in which you're <laughs> yeah. exposed to cosmic radiation and. You're using a very limited oxygen and, and food and water, so it's, it is a real, really difficult problem. Uh, but we're going to solve it. Yeah, I mean, you would we'll think do it. With, with time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just as a side note, you could just give me a yes or no answer. You don't even have to answer, uh, go in depth on this question. Have you ever seen the movie Sunshine, and did you like it? Yes, yes. I love that movie. You just mentioned the oxygen. I was thinking of like the little like botanical gardens, basically, that they had in the ship and oh, yeah. when everything went to hell. But, yeah, that, um, that's a really hot research topic. Uh, it's called bioregenerative life support. Uh, it's the idea of using um, sort of natural ecosystems to do some of your recycling of oxygen, CO2, water. Mm-hmm. Um, and it works. Even in space, you can do hydroponic and things like that. And it, produ- even it produces some food, and it produces a lot of great psychological benefit for the crew. Uh, but the problem is it's very heavy. And there's, there's something called a break-even point, and that's where whatever the mass to, and, you know, the cost to send up something like that, um, you have to stay in space for a certain amount of time for that to become more efficient than just taking everything up in tanks and bags. Sure. And we're trying to get that break-even point lower and closer so that maybe if you're only staying in space for three months, maybe that's enough that it's worth taking a garden and trying to grow your own food. But um, it's, it's a real challenge. I and mean, if you're going to be in space for two or three years, then, yeah, that's that's great. You know, send, to send up plants for sure. Mm-hmm. But we've never actually had anyone in space for that long. And um, so it's it's a hard sell. It seems like yeah. a great idea, but unless you're going to a five-year mission to the sun and back, <laughs> yeah. then uh, then it's hard to justify taking up a, a greenhouse full of plants. Right. Right. All right, well, let's close with one question here. It may be a little less sciencey, and maybe just a little bit more uh, fun. But um, Danny Bivens uh, from the staff asked, what are the effects of long-term weightlessness on the human body? Uh, they're, they're pretty grisly. <laughs> <laughs> Being in space is not really good for you, uh, and the main reason is that when you take gravity off of your body, your body no longer needs to do a lot of the things that it used to. Uh, so, for instance, the muscles and the bones in your body no longer need to support your weight. And your body, you know, there's something called homeostasis where your body tries to come into equilibrium with itself and with the environment and with what you're doing. Um, and over time, actually over a pretty short amount of time, like maybe a week or two weeks, your body realizes that, hey, you're no longer using these bones and muscles in your legs and in your back and your arms, so we're going to flush that stuff out. And so your muscles start to atrophy and your bones shrink, 
And wow. you actually, people get kidney stones very easily in space because the calcium from your bones will drain out into the bloodstream and your body will try to excrete it through urine. And it turns out your kidney is not that good at excreting calcium. So especially this, it's really being overloaded by this process. And, uh, and that's why we try to do exercise in space to try to fool your body into thinking that it still actually needs all these muscles and bones. Um, because, I mean, if you were going to space and never coming back, you would want to let your body adapt because mm -hmm. ultimately it's going to shift into a form that's more conducive to being up there. Um, but the problem is we always intend to bring our humans back from space. And because of that, we kind of want to fool the body into thinking that it's still on the ground for at least part of the day so that it doesn't over-adapt to space. Um, because when you come back, it, it, it really does cause a lot of problems. There's a lot of uh, disorientation. Um, there's like fluid shifting all over your body, like pee way too much, people throw up. Um, it's uh, very difficult to sit up for a lot of people if they've been in space for like six months because they've lost so much muscle mass and muscle strength in their back. Uh, it can be difficult to walk. And there's also the, even beyond the space environment, there's a lot of things about our vehicles that that uh, that make it sort of bad for you. I mean, like the International Space Station is a really noisy place because they have all this equipment running all the time. And that equipment keeps you alive, so you don't want to turn it off. But that equipment is really loud, and, and the astronauts usually come back with some amount of hearing loss. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's one of those things you wouldn't expect, but it's it's actually uh, it's it's pretty bad. And that hearing loss doesn't really... You can't really cure that, you know. So, no, yeah. Um, so that's, you know, when, when you're designing equipment to be used in space, especially for long periods of time, you really want to be conscious of how noisy is it going to be because you can't escape that. You can't turn it off, and you can't really get very far away from it. It might be right by your head. So these are very, very tricky design challenges that come with that stuff. And then just his follow-up questions, which we might as well hit since it's so directly related, but yeah. is artificial gravity actually possible? Uh No. No, not, not as, at all. Not as far as we know. That, that's like theoretical physics stuff. Can we? Can you create gravity without mass? Mm -hmm. Probably not. But maybe with dark energy or something like that. It's you know negative energy. I mean, these are theoretical concepts that we don't know if they're actually real. People are doing experiments all the time to try to discover the truth about whether these things might actually exist and whether we could ever harness them. But um, as far as we know, given the current state of science, no, there's no such thing as artificial gravity. There is centripetal acceleration, which is probably what you're thinking of, like in 2001 with the giant rotating space station. Um, that is real, and it does work. Uh, the problem is it's big and heavy and complicated, and um, we haven't really had a physiological need to develop that technology because we don't stay in space long enough and we don't build vehicles that are large enough to really accommodate that sort of uh, effect. Um, now, there are people uh, doing research on this with sort of small-scale um, centrifuges, and the idea, and Larry Young is a, is a professor at MIT. He's a really great guy. He's been doing this research for like 20 or 30 years, and he has, I've seen the centrifuge where they, where they do these experiments is really cool. And they've flown a version of it on the space station, but they didn't use it that much because there were some safety concerns or something like that. I forget exactly the reason, but I think this will be a, an area of research in the future. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of concerns with um, the vestibular, neurovestibular effects of being in a centrifuge that has a pretty small radius because you have to fit it in a spaceship. 
um, and you have to sort of clear out a lot of space so that you don't slam into something when you turn it on. And so because that radius has to be pretty small, your body, you know, your, your, your inner ear gets really screwed up while you're on this thing. And it, you have all these weird effects and it's, there's, there, we're not completely sure how much benefit you really get from it, especially if you only do it for, let's say, an hour a day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not really clear that that's better than just the exercise that we already do. Sure. And it's not clear what the long-term effects are of being spun in a very tight circle for, for so much time. I mean, it, maybe it's harmless. Maybe it's really bad for your brain. You know, we're not, we're not really clear on that. Um, and then also, does it, does returning you to something close to Earth gravity then make you get space motion sickness all over again as soon as you get off this thing? So are you, are you just throwing up every time you get out of it? Because all of a sudden, that, that, you know, what your body felt as artificial gravity from the centripetal acceleration, you take that away and now you're back in microgravity and it's all kind of start everything all over again. So there's a lot of open questions about the practicality of the technology, but um, it is very much real and, and very much being looked into. Uh, but we haven't really gotten, we're not really doing the kinds of space flight yet where you really absolutely need something like that. Right. But if we're going to send a crew out to Jupiter to investigate black obelisks, then uh, <laughs> that's a long enough mission that you probably do want something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, there you go. Fascinating stuff. Um, so that'll wrap it up for today, I think. Um, we still got plenty of questions left, but if uh, you, the listener, would like to submit some questions, I would suggest going to uh, the N- Nintendo World Report forums. I believe this was just in general discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you can add to the thread. Maybe we'll start a new thread, like part two, so we can flesh out the old questions and just start fresh. Um, but we'll probably keep some of these we haven't used because there's still some more good ones left. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Johnny, for being here and uh, talking about space. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening, and um, thanks to everybody who posted questions. I hope you learned something, and um, I look forward to your follow-ups as well. Great. All right. Well, yeah, we'll see you guys later then. Peace. Bye. Back